0: And now, here's your host, Sheila White.
1: Welcome, welcome, welcome to the show. Today, I'm excited. I have a friend with me on today. I have my brother from another mother. But I am glad that you tuned in today to hear how people are using their gifts to impact the world. Um, I want you to be able to tune in to, not only to this broadcast, but I want you to subscribe to this broadcast, share it with your family and friends for new episodes and content every single week when we come back we'll be talking to an individual who inspires people with his story uplifts them because he has an awesome story he's a miracle man and we're going to learn a little bit about the journey that he has been on for the last few years when we come right back
0: get back out there in style when you shop at it is amazing boutique we have all the deals and steals you need for your next night out Find upscale clothing and accessories for women, men and children at affordable prices. For more information, visit our website at www.itisamazing.biz or call us at 815-582-4995. That's 815-582-4995. Imagine yourself being pampered from head to toe surrendering to the aromas of sweet serenity welcome to libby's soaps and candles your destination for comfort and relaxation begins here visit us at libby's com to learn more about our exotic products
1: welcome back to the show my guest today is literally a miracle man um, he's a person that has a story not like too many other people share. And our connection with others can only be as deep as our connection with ourselves. This gentleman um, has a story and he's traveled all over uh, the state of Illinois sharing his story with others. Uh, he's an inspiration. Um, he is a motivator because his story will inspire you and inspire others out there that are going through some difficulty, t- some difficult times that might need a transplant, that might have had a transplant, something may be going wrong, you might be back on that list again for a transplant. Um, I want you to tune in today and listen, because this is a person that can really help you to become inspired and to keep hope. So I'm gonna call him the Hope Dealer on today because he is a survivor. Please welcome my guest to the show, Mr. Philip Hanks. Welcome, Philip.
2: Thank you, thank you for having me.
1: You know, I there is so much that we have to talk about. I want to just begin with your backstory. Um, let's go back when everything was kind of going well, was not any problems. What was the first sign um, that you were having some difficulties in your body where you had to have a transplant?
2: Well, that's uh, kind of a long and funny story. Uh, usually, when I go out and um, give my speeches and things of that nature, the mm-hmm. backstory um kind of kind of goes all the way back to 2007 okay so um actually it's a little bit before that but I had a ex-wife um mm-hmm. and you'll find out the reason why she's an ex in a minute <laughs> 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 but uh I used to be an avid bodybuilder um I've been lifting weights since a very young age I think I started when I was like 14 years old mm. uh, played basketball <laughs> and was a very athletic Okay. And in basketball, um, I was a skinny, scrawny kid. And, you know, I'd go to the hoop or to make a layup or something to that nature and get knocked on my butt. So <laughs> I started lifting weights for athletic reasons. Uh, okay. Well, as I grew up and started becoming an adult, I liked the way it looked. I liked the way it felt. And mm-hmm. I kind of indulged uh, more so into weightlifting. Mm. And my goal changed. So my goal then became to get to about 325, 350 was my target goal. And I I had the model of the Incredible Hulk in my head. Wow. (laughs) One of my my muscles to have
3: muscles.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So with that being said, I kind of went about it the wrong way. I got up to about 315, 325. Okay. Um, Just naturally, um, using a little bit of protein uh, Mm -hmm. powder and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. Um, But you know, through my diet is how I pretty much did that. Okay. I was three at at my highest weight. I was three twenty-five, majority muscle. Okay. And I wanted to get to that three fifty mark, but I had hit a plateau. So I figured Mm. since the protein powder helped me get there, um, get to some of my goals. what would happen if I added more? Oh. And I literally, you know, I didn't know you could abuse supplements oh. such as protein and creatine and things of that nature, but okay. that's what began to happen. So oh. in the morning before I went to work,
3: mm-hmm.
2: I would get up early in the morning. I built a gym in my basement.
3: Mm. I'd
2: hit a 60 gram protein shake, go in the basement, hit the weights. Okay. Hit another 60 gram protein shake, hit the shower and then off to work. Wow. When I got to work, I uh, worked up until lunchtime, and I had a gym at my job. So I would hit another 60-gram protein shake instead of eating lunch like a regular person. Oh, my goodness. Hit the, hit the gym again, and then after that, pop another 60-gram protein shake, and then, you know, a quick shower, and then back to work. Wow. When I got home, I took care of my ex-wife. I had two boys.
3: Okay.
2: And a household, and I was in IT. And IT can be a very stressful job, as your engineers and things of that nature may know. Right. (laughs) When something doesn't go right. Um, So to deal with that stress, my way of dealing with it was working out. So Mm. when I got home from work, um, I dealt with the family, dealt with with what I needed to deal with. Mm. And then went in the basement, popped another 60-gram protein shake, hit the weights again, and then another 60-gram protein shake before I went to bed. So that's 360 grams of protein. Mm. Uh, five to six days per week. That's how often I worked out. And, wow. um, you know, that, that didn't include, include the creatine and other supplements that I could get my hands on outside of steroids.
3: Wow. Wow.
2: So what happened from there was, um, you know, and I guess I should thank my ex-wife,
3: mm-hmm.
2: my ex-wife and I had a conversation about life insurance. Hmm. And okay. she wanted to take out a life insurance policy on me because I was the breadwinner. I was the only source of income. And mm-hmm. if anything's ever happened to me, you know, what about her and the kids? Right. So I right. Thought, it was, thought it was feasible and I agreed okay. to it.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: It wasn't until State Farm got to the house that I found out that she was trying to take out a half a million dollar life insurance policy on me.
3: Wow. So are
2: you still wondering why she's an ex?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it's it's interesting because this is a story that a lot of people have uh, for different reasons, you know, for different reasons. And, um, you know, there's something that's going on in the society today where, you know, so many marriages are under attack that have been under attack for a long time. And uh, money is a motivator. You know, money is a motivator. And a lot of people do things for, you know, different different reasons, you know. And so um, that's interesting. Yeah, but go ahead.
2: That's interesting. When State Farm came out to the house to do that assessment on me, because they're not just going to hand out a half million dollar life insurance policy, Mm. um, they ran all these tests and things of that nature. And probably about two to three months prior to that, I got a tattoo. Uh, Okay. And during the tattoo, I was in an argument (laughs) with Mm. my ex while I was sitting in a chair and I missed a very important question. And that question was, do you mind if we use a re-sterilized needle? Mm. And I kind of brushed them off and said, yeah, whatever. They said, cool, we'll even give you a discount. And I guess that should have caught my attention uh, as well. But it did not. You
1: said a re-sterilized
2: needle? A re-sterilized needle. So what they used to do, and I don't know if they still practice that, but you would take a needle that was um, done in a previous tattoo. You would put it in this blue solution in a jar and put that jar into this machine that would filter through the needle and supposedly clean it.
3: Oh my.
2: And sterilize it. Mm-hmm,
3: mm-hmm.
2: And uh, when he asked me that question, like I said, had I been paying attention, I would have said no,
3: mm.
2: but um, yeah, wasn't paying attention. And three months later when state farm came out to do that assessment on me and ran all type of blood tests and things of that nature, mm-hmm. they came back and said, no, we're not going to give you that half million dollar life insurance policy. And by the way, you need to go see a doctor.
3: Wow. Wow.
2: So I started dropping weight instead of gaining weight. I went, I went from 315 to 325. Um, I was trying to get to 350 and I was still lifting the same amount of weight, still doing the same amount of protein, but I began dropping weight. I went from 325 to 315, from 315 wow. to 300, from
1: 300 to 285. Wow.
2: What period of time
1: was that just every? That
2: was within months. Oh my. That was within, I'd say less than a six month period. Okay. Mm. One of the uh, things that the doctor told me when I did go see a doctor was I had fourth stage liver cancer and uh, hepatitis C that I contracted from the tattoo. Gosh. So hepatitis C is a silent killer. Mm. Uh, the reason they call it a silent killer is because you can contract it when you're like 20 years old. Yeah. You wouldn't see any symptoms or even know if you had it, unless you went to go see the doctor on a regular basis, you wouldn't know you had it until mm. you were probably about 50, 60 years old is when it would
3: oh my start goodness.
2: soaring. But by that time, it, the damage was pretty much done It attacks the liver primarily and other organs. But, um, because I was doing all the creatine protein and putting stress on my liver already, mm. um, the, the symptoms showed up sooner rather than later. Okay. And that began my first liver transplant. When they told me I had liver cancer, I had to have a liver transplant. And um, during that, that, that I left the ex-wife.
3: Mm-hmm. was living
2: single for a while. And, um, you know, by the time that I met my new wife, my current wife. Yes. Is when I was diagnosed and told I need a, a new liver. And they put me on a list and within, it was approximately five to six months, they told me they had a liver for me. And,
1: um, Now let me just stop you there for a second, Philip, because a lot of people are on the liver, they're on that list for a transplant, for a liver, for sometimes years. How did your, how did your number, how did you get pushed up that, you know, with that short a period of time? Was it just the roll of the dice or, you know, prayer or, you know?
2: No, um, I will say I'll never take anything from God. Um, mm. God had a lot to do with my whole entire life. I mean, this okay. is just a couple of events that's happened in my life. But if I was to sit here and tell you everything that's happened to me over the course of my life, that would wow. it would take hours. Wow. Um, wow. But yeah, God definitely had his hand on me. Um, mm. Because what happened was, you know, with the fourth stage liver cancer, that put me at the top of the list.
1: Oh, um, I see,
2: and, I see. And how I got the, because Walter Payton died waiting on the transplant list.
1: Yes, yes, that's um, that's what I'm saying. So that was that was pretty serious. And he went on television and, and, and pleaded with, you know, people that could be a donor and, and things like that. So, you know, that was the hand of God. That was the hand of God. Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, another thing I did, I increased my odds. The doctors advised me uh, to do this, to increase my odds, which was, I decided to accept, um, I had hepatitis C, so I decided to accept a hepatitis C liver that was not damaged. And they have cures for hepatitis C. So they transplanted me with a hepatitis C positive liver and then they cured uh, the hepatitis C after that.
1: Wow, which is a miracle in and of itself. (laughs) I mean, just to get the liver and then you have to cure the liver. It's not necessarily the healthiest liver, so to speak. And then they have to treat the liver that you're getting. Yes. Wow. And then, but, then there's, me, but, but then there's more.
2: <laughs> yes. Uh, they told me I wouldn't need a, another transplant. Um, possibly never, but
3: mm. that I
2: wouldn't need another transplant for at least 25 years. Something to that nature was the lifespan. Mm. But 12 wow. years later um, in
3: 2019,
2: Yeah. I, you know, Got remarried uh, to the love of my life. You know, everything was great. Um, Mm -hmm. I climbed the ladder in IT. So at the time that I had the first liver transplant, I was a supervisor. Okay. I climbed the ladder all the way up to IT director. Wow. And uh, started a relatively new position. I had been in a position for approximately a year Mm. and decided to take my wife and her family to visit her family members in Texas for Christmas. Mm. Uh, i always say it was kind of cool standing next to santa claus and and uh t-shirt and shorts while everyone else is here <laughs> trying to shovel their way out of the driveway But <laughs> while we were there my son who played for high school ba- he played high school basketball at the time wanted to challenge the old man to see if i still had it, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, it was really good in basketball and um yeah I took him on the court and schooled him a little bit but
3: yeah <laughs> yeah
2: yeah. During the, during the game, I did a very simple motion. You know, I just simply waved my hand in front of his face mm-hmm. to, to try to distract him from making a layup.
3: Yeah.
2: And um, a pain shot up my arm and down my back. Oh. And, you know, in bodybuilding, you know, you go through a lot of pain and things of that nature. So I tried to shrug it off. And mm. by the time we got back to my wife's relative's house, I was in so much pain that I was begging for pain medication.
3: Wow.
2: And anyone that knows me knows that I don't do a lot of like pain meds and things of that nature. Yeah. yeah. Um, so they knew something was seriously wrong because I was literally begging for it.
3: Mm. Wow. Um,
2: they gave me uh, 800 milligram ibuprofen <clears throat> tablets and I was taking two of those at a time. So 1600 milligram. Wow. Um, I started off with every four hours. It wasn't killing the pain. Switched mm-hmm. to every two hours into every hour and into every half an hour. until my current wife took the ibuprofen from me and said no more
3: Mm.
2: yeah and so i suffered for three days while we the remainder of that vacation time yeah excuse me Mm -hmm. and um came back to the illinois area yeah when we got back she more or less helped save my life because she forced me to go to the hospital to see what this pain was about Mm. and i did not want to go so that's why i kind of credit her for saying yeah Mm. Um, and when I got there they had kept me there for a month and a half trying to figure out what was this the source of this pain wow
3: Wow. and they
2: couldn't figure out the source of the pain but what they did tell me was you have fourth stage kidney failure I also had diabetes I forgot to mention
1: wow first the liver now we're talking about the kidneys
2: and diabetes and diabetes and they told me I needed a new liver so I needed a Mm. new liver and a new kidney hmm the liver and the kidney are married, so if you're putting stress on one, it's gonna affect the other.
3: Okay, okay. Wow, wow.
2: So, yeah, and in the University of Chicago, uh, here's the, the cliffhanger told me, we can't do the transplant here.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And then they said, uh, good luck, see you later. Because
1: mm-hmm,
3: <laughs> mm-hmm. they and were I afraid of them.
1: possibly losing you with something were- like that.
2: They were afraid of that. And also Northwestern, um, so my wife and I went over to Northwestern. Uh, they did refer, University of Chicago did refer us to Northwestern. OK. And when we got over there, Northwestern explained everything that was going on. Northwestern is an awesome hospital. I will yeah. always give them top cred yeah. um, outside of IU Health. But <clears throat> Northwestern told me that, and they showed me, they showed me x-rays as well,
3: mm-hmm. the
2: pulmonary vein which is the main vein that runs down the center of your body and feeds all your major organs?
3: Yeah.
2: Was scarred up. Um, how that got scarred up, something happened during a 2007 transplant. My heart stopped on the table and I was dead for three and a half minutes. Mm. So, in the course of trying to save my life, um, they, they did all these things that led to scarring of the pulmonary vein. Oh. So with that pulmonary vein being scarred up, it blocked the blood flow that fed the major organs. What the body did was it sprouted off all these little tiny veins to those organs to kind of keep them going. Mm -hmm. And whatever blood flow was still going through the scar tissue. um, Wow!
3: Wow. Which
2: is why the University of Chicago said, we we don't have the expertise to get around that scar tissue.
3: Mm. Mm.
2: So they were afraid if they gave me a new liver and kidney, it wouldn't sustain and that would pass away. Oh. It, it needs, when you do a transplant, it needs proper blood flow.
1: Hmm. Which is why they connect people uh, when, you, when you're getting a transplant, maybe a kidney, they have to connect that little, I don't know, or something and the blood's going in and making sure that there's good flow of blood going into the body. Okay. Okay.
2: That's correct. So what Northwestern tried to do, and um, once again, I credit them, um, they tried three times to reopen the pulmonary vein and remove whatever scar tissue they could remove mm. to get the blood flowing again so they, they could give me the liver and the kidney. Um, but in essence, what happened, they ultimately failed. Yeah. And I still remember when a doctor came into the room to speak to my wife and I, he had tears in his eyes when he told me that, I'm sorry, there's nothing else that we could do for you.
3: Wow. wow. Mm. So
2: my wife who... Um, had to remind me about my faith and I'm mm-hmm. a deep man of faith. She um, kind of helped remind me there's, there's, man is not the ultimate say so. <laughs>
3: yeah. yeah. Right.
2: So with that being said, my wife and I went back and spoke to those doctors again and they referred us to a doctor at uh, IU health in Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. And so we did the four hour drive out there and the doctor was assessing me to see if he even wanted to take the case. Wow. And he was very apprehensive about taking the case because Mm -hmm. of how risky it was. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. at first he was going to tell me, no, there's a story through Inside Edition um, that covers this. And even then he still states in that interview that ultimately he was going to tell me, no, and Mm -hmm. something changed his mind. And we both know what that something was. Wow.
1: God showing up again and again and again. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So Mm -hmm. what he told me next kind of floored me and that was, okay, um, I'm going to take the case, but we have to do this in an unorthodox way. And you'll be fifth in the country to ever receive this type of transplant at that time.
1: Now that type of transplant at that time, because you had the liver first and then things were kind of going crazy with your, with your um, kidney And then with this main vein being, having blockage, what was that procedure that they said only four or five people were, you know, were successful to live after that procedure? What was that?
2: It's called a multivisceral transplant, Mm. meaning more than, um, more than one organ. Okay.
3: Okay.
2: But my multivisceral transplant was not like others. And uh, I'll tell you, (laughs) When he told me what he was going to do, um, there was an event that took place that I I feel that uh, everyone needs to know. Uh, But what he told me was that he was going to take out five organs out of my body, Mm. along with he was going to cut just above the pulmonary vein where I had the scar tissue Mm -hmm. and take out all the organs connected to it and remove those, find a donor. That was a match cut the pulmonary vein, as well as the organs attached to that pulmonary vein and replace my organs and that piece of the pulmonary vein, all as one unit. Mm. So in essence, um, when he told me that, and I'll tell you what the organs were in a second.
3: Yeah. When he told yeah.
2: me that, uh, you know, my wife has high anxiety, so I couldn't react. I had to wear the poker face.
3: Wow. I to excuse
2: myself from the meeting and I went mm. to the restroom Mm. And I literally fell on my my knees in the restroom. Um, I locked the bathroom door, fell on my knees
3: Mm.
2: and began crying out. And I I started speaking to God and I asked him, I said, so this is it. This is how I die. Mm. And it was, um, you know, the spirit spoke to me and said, I haven't left you in all this time. So why would I leave you now? Mm. Wow. And as I began, as I began grasping that, I'm like, yeah, you're right. I mean, literally I, 2007 i passed away for three and a half minutes Mm. um and i had an event that took place when i was down for that three and a half minutes but
1: what happened with that particular time let's go back with that a little bit and was that like a heart attack or um what happened that just you know were you on the operating table
2: i was on the operating table so basically the new liver had an extra valve that my old liver did not so the doctor sutured that extra valve and threw me into recovery. While I was in recovery, I began bleeding out through that extra valve.
3: Mm.
2: And um, I was bleeding internally, so nobody knew anything until I began to crash. Oh. When I began to crash, the nurses rushed in, and they began processes, life-saving processes until the doctors, because the doctors had left for the evening. It was a long surgery. I guess I was last on the surgery list.
3: Mm -hmm. and
2: so they left for the evening they left the building wow so while they were rushing back uh, being called back the doctor the nurses which is why anytime I see a nurse I stop and I thank them so if you're wearing scrubs wow uh, I'll stop in the middle of whatever I'm doing and thank right
1: yes especially during the pandemic that we've been through where a lot of, you know, they they took a hit. A lot of people in the medical field really, really took a hit. And there were things that they could not unsee with people, you know, sick and dying and things. So, you know, we give kudos to all the nurses out there, you know, all over the country, because um, we just say, you know, thank you for your service. You know,
2: it's a it's a thankless job that they have. I've seen so much being in the hospital that mm. I, I just I, I have a tender heart for nurses. Um yeah. Yeah, they're awesome. They're awesome caretakers. They know their stuff. They're awesome. Mm. Each and every last single one of them. So even from the ones that draw your blood all the way through the ones that, you know, help you in the event that I was in, where I was losing my life. And by the time that the doctors got back and got me back on the operating table, I crashed.
3: Mm. So
2: how they had to bring me back was the doctor did an incision on my chest and Uh, reaching into my chest and began pumping my heart with their hand. It was massaging my wow. heart. Um, wow! Wow! That's how they got me back and got me stable.
1: Mm, wow. And then fast forwarding to th- going back to the transplant where you <laughs> said that, that because that, that yeah. there's so many people out there and we want you all to really listen in because um, this is an individual that has was not only one transplant but multiple transplants and lived. He knows what it's like to be on the waiting list. Um, to be waiting to get that phone call and to have to rush to go, you know, have the procedure done not one time, not two times, not three times.
2: Actually, actually it was three times, Mm. and uh, I'll tell you how that happened. And once again, that's how you see God and all this, yes. But when I got up off that bathroom floor and began cleaning myself up to go back out to meet with the doctors and the nurses and every uh, the doctors and the um my wife and everybody Yeah. yeah i put my hand on the bathroom door to come out of the bathroom and the spirit spoke to me again and said i'm going to use you as a testament to my glory and uh that's happened ever since i mean the the media everything i didn't seek it out i didn't ask Mm -hmm. for it it came and sought me (laughs) wow
3: wow um
2: but uh i got a just uh Because a lot of people may ask, well, what organs did you get? That's a common Mm -hmm. question I get. Right. I got a liver, a pancreas, upper Mm -hmm. lower intestine, kidney, and stomach. And I didn't even know you could transplant a stomach. Wow. But, uh, yeah, when I say I got the call three times, I got the call the first time in 2007 for that liver transplant. Okay. But once again, God was at work because we discussed, I mean... Speaking on organ and tissue transplant, uh, which is what I've been doing with Jesse White, but speaking on it, I learned a great deal. And one of the things that I learned is average wait time. And we're just talking about average. Yeah. It's seven to 10 years on the waiting list. Wow. For, for any organ.
1: And a lot of times people just pass away and, you know, no fault of their own. It's just that they can't, they're not able to hold out. Um, long enough to, to, you know, to get to that level where they're able to uh, be, you know, called in for the surgery. It's just, they just don't make it, you know. 22
2: people pass away every day.
1: Oh my, 22 people pass away because of organ, needing organs and things like that. Wow.
3: Wow.
2: So it's, it's kind of amazing. And once again, you can see the hand of God because I was called twice in one week. Um, Mm -hmm. The first time I was called, I was called four days before my birthday Mm. Um, and I received a call, you know, you need to get to Indianapolis. We have a a donor for you. Mm. I got there and they don't assess anything or do anything with the organs until you are on your way or or there.
3: Oh hi.
2: And uh, my wife and I waited all night long into the next morning. And the next morning we were told that there was a defect with the pancreas. So he called off the whole entire uh, transplant.
1: Mm, which is another yeah. side of the story because yeah. you may be called, but if there's something wrong, you know, or if your there's, body there's rejects it. the organ, you know, yeah. you're still in that in that very vulnerable state of of possibly losing your life. That's correct. You know? Wow.
2: That's very correct. Wow. Mm. So you know, we drove back. She threw me this awesome 50th birthday party. That's that's mm. a party to remember for the for the records. Uh, wow. <laughs> And then three days after my birthday, I was called again and told, hey, you need to get back. Uh, we have a donor for you. And that's when it took place.
1: Mm. Now, when you say it took place, what happened at that particular procedure? That because we, we had the liver. So now explain to them, to us, to our audience, if you, if you knew what they put in and then what they attached to that and what was attached to that, to...
3: Well-
2: so they, they had me come back, um, and that night, they wait, we waited. Uh, this particular doctor, and I think there's a lot of doctors like this, but this particular doctor is very picky about the organs that he uses and things of that nature because he wants a high success rate. Right. So he literally has his own helicopter, <laughs> and he flies out mm. to, um, you know, see the organs and assess the organs for himself. Right. And it's so funny because I was in Indianapolis, uh, at the hospital in Indianapolis waiting to be prepped. Well I was mm. prepped actually. Yeah. Yeah. While he was flying back to Chicago downtown because mm. my nor- my organs came from northwestern.
3: Mm. So, <laughs> wow. But
2: um you, you wait, you're prepped, and uh you know, when everything's ready, um they come in to get you and it's that long, long Mm. I call it the walk, but I was on a gurney. Yeah,
3: yeah. Yeah. (laughs) A
2: long walk down those double doors until you get to those double doors and then you kiss your loved one and tell them you'll see them when you wake up and uh, you go in and they removed uh, the old liver, the one I had transplanted in 2007. Okay. Along with uh, the other four organs. And then they, one day, uh, it was eight and a half hours. Mm -hmm. They did the upper lower intestine, the pancreas, the um stomach and the um the liver wow and then the next day they you know they put you in recovery or icu and then the next day they come back and they do the kidney and that took another seven and a half hours
1: so they put about four different organs in your body one day and then you were you know kind of rested in the recovery the next day you come back and they put the fifth organ uh, in your body and, and what was the, the, when they did that, what was the doctor's diagnosis to you that, well, we'll just see how it comes out. Um, we'll just, we'll just kind of wait, wait and see, or your chance is a little bit higher for even survival at this point. What, what was the doctor's response after all of the surgeries?
2: The transplants rather. That was something else that they said during the assessment. Um, the doctor gave me a 50, 50 chance of survival
3: Mm. and he
2: was really leaning towards the fact of, I may not do so well. Um, Mm. that was his prognosis, but he was willing to give it a chance and willing to give me a fighting chance.
3: Mm. The reason,
2: one of the reasons he was saying that, and one of the reasons why transplant is so rare, Mm. you can uh, do the research on stomach transplants. They're very rare because they're very rarely successful. Mm. And that's another thing that makes my story so extraordinary. Um, he had a person that received a liver as well as a stomach, um, that passed away shortly before my assessment. It was, uh, she lasted six months.
3: Okay. Okay.
2: And, um, yeah, the stomach rejected and there was nothing they could do for her. And she wound up passing away.
1: Now, when the organs reject, I know maybe it's different for different, you know, type of organs, um, what are some of the symptoms? I know it may be different, depending on what type of organ um because I've heard of people saying that they had to go into rejection, so they may have to go back like far as the kidney, then they have to go back on the machine to get blood or something like that. What were some of the symptoms they told you you might experience if something one of the transplants that you had was rejected so that you would you know kind of know
2: sure um there were several different symptoms they told me to look out for fever, um, okay. And you recognize that by like getting chills, things of that okay. nature, if you're tired all the time. Mm. And when I say tired, I mean extraordinarily tired, like you, you can barely stay awake type of tired, mm. um, or you don't wanna get out of bed, you don't wanna eat. Mm. Um, these are some of the things, any kind of pain,
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, any kind of pain you, you should um, mm. seek the doctor out. Um, and when I say any type of pain, they manage the, the operation, operating pain.
3: Okay.
2: So I'm not referring to that type of pain. Uh, okay. The type of pain I'm referring to is if you pay attention to your body.
3: Okay.
2: <laughs> and okay. I know this is going to sound funny, but you can yes. feel different things in your body. Like
3: Okay.
2: I've had liver pains.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, yeah. I've had kidney pain.
3: Mm. Um,
2: you know, it, your body tell kind of tells you. Yeah. And you need to pay attention to your body, especially after having a transplant.
3: Right. Right.
1: Now, are you with the stomach? Are you able to eat just pretty much whatever you want, or did you have to be careful?
2: I can eat whatever I want. And the fact that I had diabetes before this, and I no longer have diabetes because I got a new pancreas. Wow. I, I, I put it to work. I put the st- new stomach to work.
1: <laughs> wow. 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 Now, what was your wife's response? Because this is a lot going on. And I imagine that. You know, you're in tears, you're in fear, you're in prayer, a lot of stuff going on. What was her reaction and the family's reaction just by being told that this is what you're going to have to
2: go through? So with me, um, one of my main concerns, I'm the kind of person that I care about others more than my well-being. Yes. Um, Of course, I was stressed. Of course, I was
3: um, all of
2: that. But my main concern was my spouse.
3: And my Mm -hmm. family. Yeah.
2: yeah. I kept trying to comfort them even though I was the one getting ready to go into the Mm -hmm. operation.
3: Wow. Um,
2: But yeah, when they were wheeling me downstairs and we got to the double doors and it was time for me to go in,
3: Mm
2: -hmm. uh, my wife wouldn't look at me the whole time that we were walking. I'm talking to her. Yeah. She's kind of answering me, but she wouldn't face me. Well, when she faced me to give me a kiss
3: Mm
2: -hmm. um, before going in, I mean, it, it was just all over her face.
3: She was oh, in tears. Yeah.
2: The stress was beyond belief. Yeah. So I asked them to, could we wait a minute before I went in? Yeah. Um, I asked her for her phone.
3: Yeah. And
2: I called up a few of her friends, her, her okay. closest friends.
3: Okay.
2: I called her aunt, which was, she, mm-hmm. she was awesome at standing, you know, helping to stand behind us in this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I called other family members
3: mm-hmm. and
2: just asked them to surround her
3: with, yes. you know, as
2: best as they could with love. Yes. And this was in the middle of COVID, which mm. was another crazy thing. So they would only allow my wife in, nobody else.
1: Wow. Wow. Um, which which adds to so much more stress because, you know, like you said, during COVID, you couldn't visit people in general, get on the floor and things like that. And uh, here, this is a life saving procedures that have to happen. And some people... We're not even allowed to have certain procedures because of the pandemic. You know, they're like, well, you're just going to have to wait until, you know, things get better or, you know, this particular situation could wait. It was like emergency surgeries had to happen during this COVID time. And then not to have your family members be there with you in some instances. Um, the stress of that is just, is tremendous. It's tremendous. And so you could see it on her face that she was
3: really scared.
2: yeah. Yeah. She was very scared and, you know, as well as other family. Mm -hmm. So I kind of wanted them to kind of gather together,
3: Mm. keeping
2: in mind what happened to me in 2007. Mm. That's why I asked for them to wait and try to surround her as best as I could with her family and uh, and my family,
3: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, you know, in the event that something happened. And it's 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 kind of bad to say. Mm. That for whatever reason, that's the time that people gather and
3: yeah,
2: yeah. come closer together when yeah. we should be doing that before tragedy strikes.
1: Right, right, right. It's it's really interesting because there's so much going on. People respond in situations, well, this is what I've always done, or this is the way that I, I'm I have always been. I've always done things this way. But it's just that they they're attached to that mindset, you know. Um, a lot of people don't want to change the way they think or the way they feel or the way they do things because they always have that fallback. This is the way I've always been. This is the what I've always done. And so, people that are worriers, when something is going on, and you tell them just pray, or you want them to be surrounding the person that's in the in a crisis situation, whatever their mindset is, if it's I've always prayed or I've always you know, worried, half prayed, half worried, whatever it is, they'll go to that mindset, and that's the way they operate. They won't always operate in the positive, a hundred percent. You know, a lot of times, and um, it's 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 kind of scary, you know, because you don't know you're, they're physically there, but are they mentally and emotionally and spiritually there? You know what I mean? And that's what I mean by people will say, "I was always this way," or "I've always done it this way." Uh huh.
2: And it's it's kind of crazy because we have to change our mindsets. I mean, mm. even me. I, there's mm-hmm. a number of times where I forgot his promises. I've many a times and you got mm-hmm. to, especially in times like uh, what I was going through.
3: Yeah,
2: Those are the times that you have to hold firm to
3: mm-hmm.
2: the, the promises of God and,
3: yeah.
2: you know, believe it. Don't just, yeah. just hold on to it. But yeah. sometimes it might take a minute. Sometimes it's quick. Sometimes, you know, uh, wow. it comes when you least expect it.
1: Well, you know, what was that time like for you and your personal relationship with, with, with Christ? Because a lot of people get challenged one time and they, they just fall apart. They have a divorce or they lose a job or um, their kid is in some type of trouble and that's enough to stress them out and, and to traumatize them. Here you're going through these life altering life or death situations, yet you're still holding on to God and holding on to uh, faith and hope. How did you get through that, through those difficult moments?
2: So once again, um, I guess from practice. <laughs>
3: wow. Since
2: I was a kid, I've had um, all kinds of th- different things happen. Mm-hmm. And each time that I relied on God, um, mm. he's pulled me through one way or yeah. the other.
3: Yeah,
2: um, He always answers, even if it's not the answer we want, he always answers. Wow. And one of the things that come back to mind,
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, I mean, I, I talk to God on a regular basis. Yeah. Some people, yeah. you know, I, I, oh, I pray in the morning. It kind of goes back to what you were saying earlier, mm-hmm. as far as mm-hmm. I've always done it this way, et cetera. And so forth. Mm-hmm. God wants to be involved in every nook and cranny of your life. Um, wow. Believe it or not. Uh, and mm-hmm. I know that's kind of hard to believe. Yeah. yeah, He's God. He's He's got bigger things to worry about than what I'm going to eat for dinner. <laughs>
3: <laughs> wow, wow, wow. But, uh, when
2: you when you, uh, you know, I, and I joke with that, but no, seriously, if you incorporate him into everything in your life, especially if you're not sure, especially if you want to take a step towards something
3: mm-hmm.
2: and you're not sure, I mean, yeah. he's there. He's I, I use him as a guidance system. Wow. Uh, I talk wow. to him on a regular basis throughout the day, not just mm-hmm. praying in the morning or praying in the yeah. afternoon or praying at night. Right. Um, I speak to them throughout the day.
3: Mm-hmm. You know, you
2: might you might walk past me and I'm in deep thought. Yeah. Or yeah. even like saying something out loud when there's mm-hmm. nobody there, but mm-hmm. there's somebody there. You you, you just wow. uh, gotta believe.
1: Somebody greater than than you and I. Somebody greater than than you and I. You know, let's talk about a little bit of your work with uh, Secretary of State Jesse White because. With all these transplants, I know that's one thing that's um, is really important to him to for people to um, you know sign up as a donor. Um, what is that type of um, work like, and how have you been instrumental in helping people to get more information about being a uh, organ donor?
2: So my actual journey began before I was even out of the hospital at IU Health. Um, the doctors couldn't understand how fast I was recuperating nobody could understand this a man I should say couldn't understand it Mm -hmm. but I understood it it was it's God and I guess that's what he meant when he said he was going to use me as a testament to his glory because Mm -hmm. I stayed positive very positive even in times where it looks grim Mm -hmm. I relied on him Uh, with that being said IU Health started kind of reaching out to me when I was still in the hospital and asking me to speak to other transplant patients that were either going to receive, you know, more than one organ or uh, receive one organ and Mm -hmm. they just weren't sure, or they didn't have the positive attitude
3: Mm. and
2: uh, they were being negative and things of that nature. Mm. Um, It still happens to this day. IU Health still reaches out to me today.
3: Mm.
2: So when I got back to Illinois, um, you know, back home permanently because mm. IU Health also put me up in Indianapolis in a loft. Okay.
3: Okay.
2: I was supposed to be in the hospital six months. I was only there uh, in the hospital about a month and a half, two months.
3: Wow. This but is they wanted to
2: keep. Yeah. They wanted to keep me close. Um, so mm. they put me up in a loft uh, downtown, like seven, five or seven minutes away from the hospital.
3: Mm. And they paid for it. Wow. So wow. when
2: I came home permanently, um, I was contacted by IU Health
3: mm.
2: and their media department. And that's how the Inside Edition story got out. The Chicago Tribune picked it up.
3: Yeah.
2: I mean, my story has been everywhere. But yeah. Jesse White, uh, the secretary, got a hold of the story through the Chicago Tribune. I made the front page of the Chicago Tribune.
3: Yes.
2: And he was reading a newspaper. And from my understanding, he said, get this guy in here. So. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> his communications department reached out to me and asked me to do a PSA form. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I came in, I did the PSA. And when I was about to leave, it was a radio spot.
3: Yeah.
2: And when, uh, after I recorded it and I was about to leave, I was asked, do you, would you like to meet uh, the secretary? He would like to meet you. Wow. And I was elated. I was beside myself. Like, yes, definitely. Yes,
3: absolutely.
2: So, um, he, they brought me upstairs, his security and everyone brought me upstairs and, uh, mm-hmm. Went into his office, and mm-hmm. it was like speaking to my grandfather or someone. The guy is wow. awesome.
3: Wow, wow.
2: And, wow. Um, you know, he, he brought me into his office, sat me down. We had a long conversation. And mm-hmm. Towards the end of that conversation, he asked me, so what are you doing?
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: I said, he asked me, what are you doing as far as work? Yeah. I said, well, I'm not working right now. Um, unfortunately, I, I couldn't hold on to that IT director position. Right. And uh, I was still recovering from the surgeries and everything else. Mm-hmm. And my doctors really didn't want me doing anything, even though I won't get into that because we're, we're public, but there was yeah, things that I was yeah. doing against doctors wishes. Yeah, um, yeah. Like, you know, three months after the transplant, I forced the doctor's hand into letting me take my wife to Aruba as kind of like a thank you for, Mm. Uh, being by my side and everything else. And wow. uh, also, it's kind of like a stress relief because you got to remember, she's a mm. school teacher. Mm. So she taught through COVID. She took care of the household. Wow. She took care of the kids. And she took care of me
3: Wow, uh, through
2: COVID. And we wow. went through this transplant. Man, and that's a lot.
1: That's a lot. That is a lot. So
2: yeah. I had the opportunity to take her to Aruba. So I said, we're going to Aruba. And the doctors were like, no, you're not. Yeah. And <laughs> you shouldn't even have the strength to go And Not only did I take her to Aruba, but climbed down the side of a mountain. My wife wanted to go to this lava pool down at the bottom. She didn't want to go by herself. So Mm. she, in essence, said, well, um, I I won't go. We'll just sit up here at the observatory and view it from up here. And Mm -hmm. I said, no, if you want to go, we're going to go. And I literally climbed down the side of a mountain, side, um, let her play around in the water. And I still had a port in my chest, so I couldn't get in the water with her. Yeah. But, um, you know, after we were done, we climbed back up the side of the mountain. I actually lapped my wife, meaning we got halfway up and she wanted to take a break and I wanted to keep going.
3: Oh, my.
1: Oh, man, this is this is real life, folks. This is real life. A lot of you have uh, loved ones that are waiting for a transplant. Um, Some have had a transplant, some of your loved ones, or maybe you've had one yourself. And, you know, you don't know, you know, the pain and, you know, uh, the sorrow and the fear of of, of the organ and, and is it going to stay and will I have to get another one or will I have to look for another transplant? All of those thoughts. Here's an individual that had five transplants, six transplants,
3: six, six <laughs>
1: transplants and is still here, still alive, climbing the top of a mountain down and up. This is inspiration. You don't have to live like a vegetable. Um, you can make it. You can have Um, more out of life, even if something like this happens to you. And that's why we wanted you to hear the story. Um, He's been working with Secretary Jesse White as far as the organ donor, encouraging other people that are in those shoes, you know, to be encouraged, to hold on, to let them know that it's not over, (laughs) that it's not over. But I think the thread that he has said through this conversation has been, he has had a faith. He's had a belief in God. He did not give up. He did not throw in the towel and say it's over, but he kept of faith and he kept his heart where he could hear the voice of God speaking to him on the inside. And I think it's important to have hope and not to give up when you're going through not only organ type of uh, transplant situations, but just any kind of diverse situation that may make you want to lose hope, to give up. Um, this is a person that has a connection um, with God and that's helped him to get through it. You Sometimes you gotta believe in more than yourself. Sometimes you got to believe in more than the doctor's prognosis because first they were telling him they don't think he's going to make it and he succeeded against the odds. So you just have to keep the faith, stay strong because, you know, he. I'm sure he had to find the right doctors. Sometimes one doctor tell you something. Tell us about that journey um, before we close as far as you go to one doctor, one doctor says one thing, but then you find another doctor in a whole nother area at a whole nother hospital that's willing to take on this monumental, uh, challenge.
2: Oh, uh, once again, that was just, um, um, uh, God, um, university of Chicago told me they couldn't do it mm. and that they wouldn't do it. Um, cause they didn't want to take the risk is what I later found out. Yes. Uh, Northwestern tried to do everything in their power to get it done.
3: Mm. And
2: they, they tried and in essence, uh, were unsuccessful. And, wow. um, you know, the, the frustration did start to set in. I I won't sugarcoat that
3: Right, Uh, frustration began
2: to set in and I ask a lot of questions. I talk a lot Mm. (laughs) and, um, you know, you call me curious George, but (laughs) I I needed to know, Mm. Hey, how's this even during the first transplant, um, I engineer, I'm an IT engineer by trade
3: Mm. as
2: I stated earlier. Um, and the way my brain works is, I have to understand something. In order mm-hmm. to understand something, I have to uh, research it. I have yeah. to ask a lot of questions, look into mm-hmm.
3: it. Yeah.
2: And one of the things that I did, um, I started writing a book before the okay. two thousand seven transplant. Okay. And basically, what made me start, what prompted me to start writing the book, is what happens if I don't make it? That's oh. a question that I asked.
3: Mm.
2: What will happen? When I, you know, mm-hmm. how can I have confirmation? There's another side. Uh, what wow. does that other side look like? These are some yeah. of the questions that I was asking.
3: Yeah. Of
2: course, the Bible tells us about an afterlife, mm-hmm. but
3: mm-hmm.
2: I started researching near-death experiences.
3: Mm. And
2: these are people who like myself, but longer than myself, passed away, uh, were clinic- what they call clinically dead, meaning mm. you're ready for the morgue, um,
3: mm.
2: you're, you're, you're dead. Uh, yeah. what a doctor pronounces dead mm-hmm. and came back from being dead and had a story to tell. These are the people that I wanted to hear from. These are the people that I wow. wanted to do the research on. Yeah.
3: Yeah.
2: Uh, if you want to be a millionaire, you don't go ask someone who makes $10 an hour. You go, you go ask a millionaire how he became a millionaire. Wow. Um, and you know, that was my mindset. So mm-hmm. that's what prompted me to start writing the book. And I wrote about, it was, once again, faith-based.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: How do you, how would I speak to an atheist, someone who did not believe? Of course, he's going to want some type of proof, right?
3: Yeah,
2: yeah. Well, mm-hmm. near-death experiences, if you can't get any more proof from that, uh, the doctor has diagnosed some of these people, as, as I stated, there was uh, several people who woke up in the morgue.
1: Wow, it's amazing. And, you
2: know, And they came back with a story to tell.
1: Wow, this this is tremendous. Um, one thing I want to ask you, how can um, someone get a hold of you if they want to get a hold of you for just a speaking engagement, um, to talk with you, uh, ask questions, to hear more about your story, to get your book that's going to be coming out? How can they get a hold of you just for that encouragement?
2: Sure, they can reach me at philipohanksenterprises.org.com. Uh,
3: mm-hmm.
2: They can uh, reach out to my cell number, 773 537 8704, or they could find me on Facebook, Instagram, or um, uh, send me a tweet okay. on
1: Twitter. <laughs> and then, one last thing I want to ask you, Philip, uh, is mm-hmm. what would you say to a person that is going through this situation where they're needing a transplant? Maybe just one, not even talking about six transplants, but just one transplant. Uh, speak to that person out there that may be just been waiting for years and thinking that, you know, they're just going to have to t- continue to stay on dialysis or some other form of treatment. Uh, speak to that person and and, and let them know. Um, give them encouragement. Or What would you say to a person out there?
2: I've spoken to a number of people like that. Uh, as a matter of fact, I've reconnected through the commercial that Jesse White did, uh, et cetera, and so forth. A lot of people have reached back out to me once they saw that commercial. Mm-hmm. And uh, I tell everyone um, pretty much the same formula. And what that formula is, first and foremost, first and foremost, have faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, God is still in the miracle business. And if you want living proof, here I am. Mm-hmm. Um, number two, I would tell them, get on more than one list. These, this is information that I did not have and no one told me until I started digging and, and researching and finding out different things.
3: Okay.
2: Um, you can be listed on more than one list. There's a okay. lot of people out there that's, you know, if you live in Illinois, they think that you can only be listed in Illinois. That's untrue. Oh. You can be listed in Illinois, Indiana, uh, Wisconsin. Mm. Um, these These are all different lists that you can yeah. get on. Yes. Uh, seek out specialty centers. Uh, I always will advocate for IU Health. Mm-hmm. Uh, Northwestern is one of them, but IU Health in Indianapolis, mm-hmm. they do rare transplants. I mean, oh, okay. do the research on stomach transplants. They're very rare. Wow.
3: Wow.
2: Um, as well as, um, you know, mm-hmm. I believe in holistic health as well.
3: Yes, yes,
2: yes. You know, don't stop moving. Don't give in everything begins with the mind it -hmm. begins with god Mm -hmm. but god can only work so far if you've already got your mind made up that you're done in and that you're you're done Mm -hmm. um god can change any narrative i mean once again i'm living proof of that you can change any narrative but it begins with you
1: wow Wow, it's awesome. Well, friends, we're just about out of time. I just want to thank you for listening. I hope something was said today really encouraged your heart. I hope the information that Philip shared, uh, you'll be able to pass it on to your loved one or friends, uh, work, work, pers- workmates, um, just to be able to help them to know that it's not over, that you can be registered on one more, more, more than one registry, as he was saying. Um, I want you to listen to this entire broadcast on our website. If you did not hear all of this broadcast, listen for more updates, more information uh, for leave a comment as well. As far as this show and um, that we talked about, we were talking about organ transplants today with Philip Hanks, who's been throughout the media. Um, sharing his story about six transplants. He's still here. He's still alive. He's climbing up the mountain, climbed down the mountain with his wife in Aruba, uh, just doing some great things. And so I want you to uh, get in contact with him, share him with a person that you know that may be going through a difficult time right now. I want you to remember that no matter what you're going through, that you are uniquely designed and strategically gifted. Use your gifts To impact the world share your story make a difference thank you for listening
0: thank you for listening to gifted with sheila white we hope you understand how your gifts can make an impact on the world gifted with sheila white is produced by road to eternity a film and television production company